Bibles with you. We're going to go to Judges chapter 7, continue our, uh, our study through Judges. And remember last time we got together, we, we've been talking about uh, Gideon. And what we saw last time, Gideon takes a unique journey. And, and hopefully for us as we study it, there's a lot of things that we can take from it. In the beginning we find Gideon, who's, whose name uh, means feller of trees... And can mean mighty warrior, but the, it probably came to mean mighty warrior after Gideon. But uh, what we see is Gideon hiding in a hole, afraid of, uh, of the world he lives in and the things that are going on in his world. So, so he don't want to go out. So we find Gideon in his first place in a place of, of uh, cowardice, really afraid. He's afraid. Fear has, has uh, paralyzed him. So that he can't do the things that, that God's really calling him to do. And so we saw in chapter 6, Gideon began to take his journey of faith. And I'm reminded, as we look at Gideon's journey of faith, I want you to think about it. You know, Gideon, he, he has the, the questions we talked about last time that he asked the Lord and, and the things that God shares with him. But then he, he, he goes on and he lays out... Uh, you know, asking God, do you really know what you're doing, God? You're calling me? Are you sure? You know, and, and the Lord answers that question. And then he, he asks him about, well, Lord, I want to make sure I'm really listening to you. So, so he did the whole fleece deal. All through that whole thing, what I want you to see is God was not upset with Gideon. God is long-suffering and patient. And he is patient for us in our time as we're struggling with different crises of faith that we may face. I want you to remember a story about Jesus. Jesus has not, as yet, healed anyone. He's in Cana, and a guy comes to him because he knows that his child is sick back home. And when he comes to Jesus, he says, and Jesus asks Jesus, will you come with me and, and heal my child? And Jesus said... This generation will not be satisfied till they see signs and wonders. So Jesus gives them this, this little rebuke. That's the wrong one. That's the right one. Okay. It don't have to be loud. You know I holler anyway. <laughs> we know what? What? Okay, so along this guy's walk of faith, here's where he's at. He, he, first, he's like, he knows something's happening. Jesus did a miracle. He turned water to wine. So far, that's the only thing that, that this guy knows about. So he's got faith, if you will. His faith is in a higher power. Something's happening. And then he comes to Jesus. Jesus rebukes him. Gives him this... this Kind of mild rebuke that he delivers to him. But the man continues to ask. He comes to him again. He says, hey, would you just come with me? So then Jesus tells him, no, you go. Your child's healed. And the man went away, believing the promise, having faith in the promise that Jesus just gave him. He didn't see his child well. He turns around and goes home. When he arrives home, his servants come out to him and they tell him, Hey, your, 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 uh, your child has been made well. Hey. 
Your child has been made well. And so he said, he inquires of him, what hour did it happen? And so he starts to figure it out. And he, he says, the same time that Jesus told them. And then the scripture says, he places his faith in Jesus Christ. You see this man in that, in that connection with the Lord, making a journey of faith. We see in the lives of the children of Israel, right? When they first came to the Red Sea and they're panicking and they're they're freaking out, God didn't ask them to make some mighty step of faith at that point, did he? He told Moses, stretch out your rod. When the bad guys are coming and God says from the pillar of fire in the clouds, stretch out your rod, that's not a huge step of faith. That's pretty close to diving in, which was probably be my next move. He stretches out his rod, the Red Sea parts. Man, we see great things happen. But as he takes the children of Israel over the the next 40 years and their time in the wilderness and the different things that they struggle with, when he brings them to the Jordan River and the Jordan River is swollen in flood stage and they come up to the Jordan River, he requires a little more, doesn't he? Now he says, I want you to put your feet in the water. And when your feet are in the water... The priest carrying the ark, then I'll stop it. So that time they had to get a little bit wet. Then they go on and they're in the shadow of Jericho, remember? And God says, hey, before you guys go to battle, this is a great time for us since we have been neglecting the, the, the work of circumcision to now stop in the battlefield overlooking the enemy you're about to go to war with and be circumcised. That's another step of faith, isn't it? For three days, every man will be unable to fight. But they took that step of faith, followed in obedience. Which is a good thing, because when they receive the battle plans for Jericho, that's another step of faith, isn't it? All along the way, what we see is that for you, for me, for them, there is a journey of faith that takes place. And in that journey of faith, the Lord is going to take us from one challenge to another challenge to another challenge. Here's what I want you to really grasp, really take away from this. And that is, as we look at the book of Judges, realize the judges are just men and women like everybody else. David was a man just like everybody else. Abraham, the book of Hebrews tells us, was a man just like everybody else. What made them different was where they put their faith. We put our faith anywhere we want, can't we? I can put my faith in a prayer. I can put my faith in a book. I can put my faith in Jesus Christ. What your faith is in makes all the difference in the world to how you're going to perform. The things, the choices that that you're going to be able to make. For Gideon, he's, he's in a crisis of faith. He doesn't understand why his world's upside down. Now, God had told them, If you guys are disobedient, you're going to go through this time of rebellion. And then that time of rebellion, there will be a time of retribution. And that time of retribution is going to bring you to a time of repentance. And that time of repentance is going to bring you into a deliverer who's going to bring you rest. And the time of rest is going to lead you back to rebellion. And that's where the people are. And they're rebellion against the Lord. But God patiently, through chapter 6, patiently just continues to help Gideon's faith grow. 
We see Gideon at the end of chapter 6, he, he blows the trumpet and he calls forth the army and 32,000 people show up. 32,000 people show up against 135,000 Midianites. Just by way of remembrance, so we remember the Midianite army, the very first army in history to use camels. They had a cavalry of camels. Before you think, well, that don't sound so bad. Camels enabled the army to go 100 miles a day. That's pretty fast for an army in those days. That's, that's moving. Really allows them to cover some ground. Really allows them uh, uh, to be able to, to really get after it. And so that army is down. Now they're in the, in the Valley of Jezreel. The Valley of Jezreel is called lots of different names. But the most common one that we know is Armageddon. Or the plains of Megiddo. The mountain Megiddo overlooks the Valley of Jezreel. And the Valley of Jezreel is where Elijah did battle with 450 priests of Baal. That hasn't happened yet. That's still future. The, the Valley of Jezreel is what we just read about. Remember Barak and Deborah going against Sisera? 10,000 guys in the army at that time. And they routed the enemy and Sisera got nailed. Everybody remember? Tent stake. No, nobody's going to laugh for that joke. Not even a snicker, babe. Come on, where, where are you at for me? Okay, so anyway, Sisera, Sisera dies. That's in the Valley of Jezreel. The final battle we see when Christ returns is in the Valley of Jezreel. A lot of these things take place there. We'll remember maybe from history, Napoleon, upon seeing the Valley of Jezreel, said that's the most perfect battlefield on earth. A lot of battles have been fought there, and that's where the Midianite army is encamped. Now, a little ways away from there, roughly four miles at, the, the, at Harad, that's where the 32,000, the army of the Lord, are encamped. So let's pick it up in chapter, one, or chapter 7, verse 1. Then Yerub Baal, uh, that is Gideon, remember, that's the name the people gave him. Because he went, contended against Baal. He tore down the altars of Baal in part of his journey of faith that God brought him in the last chapter. So they called him Yerubbaal. <clears throat> his name is Gideon, so you won't miss it. And all the people who were with him rose up early and encamped beside the well of Herod. So that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray. In the valley. So they're basically on top. uh, In this mountain range. Looking down on the valley. About four miles away from the other army. That's encamped down there. So because of where they're at. They can see how big it is. They can see all the camels. All the people. All that army down there. And they're here at Harad. Now Harad means trembling. So they're at the spring of trembling. Probably because at this time. The people are a little bit afraid they're a little bit shook up they're about to go to battle if you've ever run headlong into battle you know that feeling that feeling right before you go that time of trembling that comes so here they are in that place gathered together and the lord said to gideon the people who are with you are too many you don't you have too many you have too many too many for who What's the verse say? Too many for who? Too many for me, God said. Too many for me. 
God doesn't need us to form a majority against any enemy. Do we understand that? God doesn't need us. It's, he doesn't need some vast number. He doesn't need some mighty man. Over throughout Genesis to Revelation, God is in the business of showing a, us first that he can confound the wise with who? The foolish. That he confound the strong with who? The weak. That God doesn't need a big pile of numbers, or he doesn't need a giant bank account, or he doesn't need all the things that, that historical worldly wisdom would say, this is what you need to be successful. He doesn't need it. So here they are in the, in the well or the spring of trembling. They're gathered together, 32,000. God says, there's too many here for me. He feels like he's taking advantage of the Midianites already. So... He wants to, to whittle the number away. How many times when we look at the odds against us, the odds against them right now are four to one. That's not that bad. Four to one, that, that's almost manageable. I can tell you world and the armies that, that overcame four to one odds. Four to one odds, God says, when you win this battle, you're going to forget that I'm the one who was here with you. So I want to make sure you don't forget. I want to make sure that you know. But how many times for us, when we look at the odds, when we look at the enemy, how many times do we feel sorry for them, knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord? I can promise you Gideon wasn't feeling sorry for the Midianites yet. He's feeling sorry for himself. Oh, you're kidding, Lord. Really? Too many? That's four to one odds right now. So God tells him to do something. What's he tell him to do? The Lord said to get in. The people are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. So, uh, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. Now I'm sure in Gideon's mind when he gave this order, he didn't expect two-thirds of his army to leave. 22,000 people turn around and leave. Oh, good, I was hoping somebody would tell me I didn't have to do this. So they went home. 22,000 left, from 32,000 to 10,000, just like that. But as you're considering that, as you think about that, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. And Deuteronomy chapter 20, you may remember, is... As Moses has given his final words to the children of Israel, he has some, uh, some discussion for them in terms of battle and battle planning. So he says in chapter 20, beginning at verse 1 of Deuteronomy, When you go out to do battle against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots and people, what, more numerous than you, he says... Do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He doesn't say, if you see armies that are bigger than you, if you see horses and chariots, and if occasionally they have more people than you. What did he say? He said, when you see this, don't be afraid, trust in me. Hold on to the promise that God has given. In verse 2 he says, so it shall be when you are on the verge of battle... And the priest will approach and speak to the people. And he will say, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. 
Nor do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, it is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to do what? To save you. It's God's fighting for you. If you are fighting for yourself, you are fighting a losing battle. God is fighting for you. So the priest would go before the army and encourage them. It's God who goes before you. If God was not with Israel, what happened to them? They lost. How many times? Most of the time? Some of the time? Every time God was not with them, they lost. Every time God was with them, did they win most of the time? They won all the time when God was with them. When God was moving them to battle. Then the officers will speak to the people and say, in verse 5, What man is there who has built a house and has not dedicated it? Let him go, return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another dedicate it. So he says, hey, if you built a house and you haven't lived in it yet, go home. Why? Well, we can't afford to be down that many people. What if everybody who built a new home that year in the army didn't fight? Oh, no, we'd have greater odds, right? Well, God says, I don't need you. If you built your home and you haven't lived in it yet, go home. Go live in your house. Then he goes on. He says in verse 6, And what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Now, any of you who know anything about vineyards, it takes a while to produce fruit from a vineyard. Anybody who planted a vineyard and had not eaten of its fruit, had not partaken of, of the harvest from that vineyard yet, the Lord says, tell them to go home. They haven't enjoyed their vineyard. They haven't lived in their home. It says in verse 7, And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go, return to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man marry her. If you were betrothed or being married, you actually were unable to serve in the army for at least a year. No serving. You and your wife, that's it. You go worry about that. You're not going to fight in a battle. You go home and be with your wife. Verse 8. And the officers will speak further to the people and say, What man is there among you who is faint-hearted and fearful? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. Faith is contagious. So is fear. Faith is contagious, so is fear. God doesn't need 32,000. But 22,000 people who are afraid can turn a victory all crazy. So God's message to his people, before you ever get into the battle, let the guys who are afraid go home. You don't need them. You don't need them. There's a lot of things, a lot of challenges, a lot of things we face in our life. And we'll sit down and we'll formulate our plan. And this is how we're going to take care of this challenge. This is how we're going to overcome the situation. Maybe in this world, in this time, in this economy today, you're doing it right now. You're, do, you're building yourself an economic plan of how whatever you have left after all the market crashes and all the stuff's gone on, how you can make that last from now until you die. And you can make your plans and you can do all of those things. But the scripture says, unless the Lord builds a house, you labor in vain 
who build it. Unless the Lord builds a house. Living in that place of, of a radical, if you will, a radical faith. I, I don't think it's a radical faith. I think it's a faith. It's the faith of Abraham. It becomes the faith of Gideon. It's the faith of David. It's the faith of Elijah. It's the faith of Jeremiah. You pick the guy out of the Bible. It's not that God somehow gifted him with something that we don't possess. We saw in chapter 6, Gideon is filled with the Holy Spirit. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, guess what? So are you. To accomplish the things that God lays out before you. It's not a radical faith. It's just faith. It's just that real faith placed in Almighty God. So... We see that Moses told the people, tell the people who are afraid to go home. So you see Gideon doing the same thing, just being obedient to what God had already spoken in Deuteronomy through Moses. So God says, tell all those who are afraid to go home. 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Now, the odds are 14 to 1. Now, that's a little worse. 14 to 1. Every man has to kill 14. Nobody can miss one. 14 to 1 odds. That's what the army faces right now for the battle. But the Lord said to Gideon, we know the story, right? People are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will, I will test them for you there. Don't lose sight of that. God says, bring them down to the water and I will test them there for you. There are times in our life When we face a test that we didn't even know was a test. Just like the armies of Gideon right now. They're going to go down to the springs of Herod. The springs of Herod literally literally just come straight out of the ground. So if you were there, and if we go to Israel, you'll be there. And you'll get a chance to drink the water. And man, it's so cold. It's good. Good water. It's full of little snails. Yeah, but it's okay. It's a little protein. But they say the little snails is proof that the water's good. Uh, I promise you'll drink it because it'd be like 190 and you're sweating because you just hiked to the top of this mountain and they say, look, there's the spring of Herod. And they want to watch and see how you drink, whether you're part of Gideon's 300 or not. So you, they, what, they, go, they come up. Now think about this. There's 10,000 guys. If you could see the spring of, of Herod... Um, it's not even as big as this, this room. In fact, if you took one of the sections of chairs and cut it in half, that's about the size. So 10,000 guys didn't just go careening into that. Gideon just set up and he told the guys, hey, you guys can, can get some water. And, and they came up, you know, group by group, little by little. And as they came up, God's going to say yes, no, yes, no. And the soldiers, they don't know anything. They're just getting a drink of water. But God's testing them in that drink of water to choose the ones that he's going to use. So he says, the scripture goes on, he says, now here's what will happen. You still have too many, so they will go down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same will go. 
And of whomever I say this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. Now, I got to think Gideon, through his crisis of faith in chapter 6, is not feeling all that great about what's going on right now. I don't think he's very happy. I think he thought the 32,000 was a good number compared to what he's about to have. And, and God still is going to be patient with him and still grow his faith. But when God's done preparing Gideon, I want you to know something. Gideon is never the same again. Once Gideon turns that corner and he applies that real faith, that radical faith we're talking about, that's it. He's going that way. He's, he's going to fulfill all those things that God has for him to do. But as he, we look at the problem, here's the question, guys. Here's the question. If we really believe what the scripture says in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, then it doesn't matter how big the army is. It doesn't matter how many surgeries the surgeon has performed. It doesn't matter any of the things that we might look at and say, well, this is the way it ought to be, or this is how things ought to work. How is it done? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. We either believe it or we don't. If we believe it, the size of the army doesn't make any difference. Because we see the size of our God. And he's much bigger than the challenge that we face. Well, it, while, you're, while you're contemplating that, I want you to also consider Psalm 27. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. I don't care what you put in those two blocks. Some trust in their 401k. Some trust in... It doesn't make any difference. The whole concept is anything that you're putting your trust in that's outside of the Yahweh. That's the covenantial name of God. That's the I am he uses. The I am. The name. The, the becoming one. He's saying you can put your trust in horses and chariots and, and, and whatever you think. The, the might of your country. Maybe filled with swelling pride about how mighty the army is. And then you can realize that throughout history we've watched mighty armies fall. We studied about them in school. The might of these incredible world-conquering nations that ultimately come to their collapse. Over and over and over. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. But we will remember the name of our Lord. What's the name? I am the becoming one. I am everything you need. Either we believe that's true or we don't. So the test for us, just like the test for Gideon, is learning to be able to put your weight in the hands of God, in His hands that you can't see, on the edge of the cliff, and you can see your destruction, and you can see all the bad things that can happen. Can you put your weight in His hands? Will you trust in the I am? 
Or are you looking for horses and chariots? Are you looking for strength and power? Or will you rely on the Spirit? The same for Gideon's, the same for us. Same for Abraham. Same for the, for the disciples. Think about the stuff the disciples did. We have all studied the life of Jesus, been through the Gospels before. We see all the dumb things that the disciples do. All the silly fights that they have. But we have the same silly fights. We do the same dumb things. But then when it comes to the great things that they did, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon Peter and he stood up and he spoke and 3,000 people got saved because he was obedient to the movement of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden we think we can't relate to that anymore. Sure you can. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't because he was more intelligent. It was simply the move of the Spirit and his ability to live by faith we walk by faith and not by sight the whole army gathered together against the philistines how many guys were they afraid of one remember what his name was goliath he kept challenging them. come on come on let's go let's fight send out your best and one scrawny little teenager shows up and says, what are you guys all afraid of? And goes out there with a shoestring and a rock. You ever seen a sling? Okay, maybe not a shoestring. A belt. More like a belt. A belt and a rock. Against the best warrior the Philistines had. Why? What did David know? It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by the Spirit. Some right over there, Goliath was trusting in his big old giant sword and his big old giant shield and his mighty muscles and all the stuff he had going for him. But David tells him, you got all that, but I got the Lord. You're in big trouble. It's not going to work out for you. It's all the same. It's all the same. We have to learn to take that radical step of faith, which is simply just really entrusting our weight into the hands of of the God who created the universe and live in that place and stop being satisfied with saying I can't live there I can't accomplish that I can't be like those people yes you can and God's patient enough like with Gideon to walk you through the steps long suffering to prepare you to make you ready to be more than you can be any other way than living for him so the Lord gives him the instruction. Verse 5, it says, He brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, like a dog, like a dog laps, you will set him apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Now, here's where I'm different from every commentary I have read. I don't believe that the 300 guys were the most prepared guys for battle. I don't believe that the 300 guys were chosen because they were prepared. They kept their eyes up and they were always watching. So God said, yeah, that's the ones I can do it with. I don't think that's how God works. I don't think Samson was a big old 
powerful dude with muscles bulging out of his ears and just 400 pounds of muscle everywhere. Because when people saw him, what would they say? Wow, that's a big dude. No wonder he whoops everybody. I think Samson was a scrawny little guy. Skinny little arms. And he's going around working everybody and people are going, what in the world is a story with this guy? Where does he get his strength? Why? Because that's how God works. Paul was so exalted and doing so many great things that God gave him a thorn in the flesh that would keep him weak so that he wouldn't be exalted above measure, Paul said. God said to Paul, because when you're weak, what happens? I am strong. The 300 guys that get picked over to the side are the, the bottom 300 of the army. That's what I think. In fact, I bet when they're dividing them, the dudes are in this side are saying, oh, we're getting cut. We're not good enough. We're not athletic as those guys. I mean, look at them. Big arms, and they can really swing them swords. They don't even know they don't need those yet. So the 300, I don't, that's what I think. I think that fits with God's program. The 300 are the fat guys who can't move anymore. They're all around 47 to 57 or something. Still in the army, still got a little bit to offer, but they're not moving like a cat in their mind, perhaps. But in reality, it's not that way. So that's what I think. You can go with them other guys and say, oh, their eyes were up and they're watching, but I don't buy it. And the Lord said to Gideon in verse 7, by the 300 men who laughed, I will save you. And deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Odds just went from 14 to 1 to 450 to 1. Those are odds you're going to see often in the scripture. Elijah's battle with the priests of Baal. Uh, Many of the battles you'll see similar things. Why? Because the battle is now impossible. It's impossible. And I love how many places in Scripture the Scripture tells us things are impossible. Like, for example, you remember when the disciples are talking with Jesus and the rich young ruler goes away and Jesus says, Oh, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And the disciples knew what he meant. They didn't think, Oh, if a camel got down on his knees and crawled through the little door... Then he was humble enough he could get in. No. They said to the Lord, Well, if a rich person can't get saved, what hope do we have? And the the Lord said to him, With man it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. No such thing as impossible. No such thing. I don't believe... A negative report that comes out of a doctor's office about somebody until God confirms it. If God says that's how it's going to be, that's how it is. Man cannot tell me a situation is hopeless. Well, he can, but it doesn't make it hopeless. Until God says, this is going to be for my glory, trust me, I'm bringing you home, then I don't buy it. I don't have to buy it. My God is bigger than that thing, whatever it is. My God is bigger than me losing my house. My God is bigger than me being sick. My God is bigger than me if, I, if I'm losing my... Whatever the thing is. God is bigger. 
And I don't have to be afraid. I just have to trust him. I just lean into him. And I love when God whittles away, he repeats the promise to Gideon again, the fourth time. How many times does God have to tell you a promise before you believe it? Well, God's not mad. He tells him again. By these 300, I'm going to deliver you. By these 300. What he doesn't tell him is, you're not even going to need your sword. You're not really going to need to do much. I'll tell you what to do. You just do it. So the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you. So the people took provisions in verse 8 and their trumpets in their hands. And he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained the 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now I want you to understand, when he says he sent them away to his tent, they're still there. We're going to see them come around in a minute. They're there, but they're not part of the army that's attacking. They're not part of the the attack that Gideon's bringing. They went back to their tents. And it happened on the same night that all this occurred. On the same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Now, I want you to think you're Gideon. You had 32,000. He, he cut it down to 10. Then he cut it down to 300. What did he just cut it to right now? Cut it to one. He said, Gideon, arise and you go. I've delivered it into your hand. I, I bet Gideon is freaking out right now. Are you kidding me? You're going to send me down there by myself? Well, what's the next verse say? Just in case Gideon's not quite there yet. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. So you can take along your servant with you if you're afraid. And obviously we know Gideon was afraid. Why? Yeah, Pura went with him. So it says in verse 11, And you will hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. So he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost to the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley, as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as a sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. And he said, I had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and it came to a tent, struck it, so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. So get the idea. God says to Gideon, get up, I'm going to deliver them to your hands. If you're afraid, take a servant with you. So he grabs his servant, Pura, so we know he's afraid. And he goes down to the camp, and he's sneaking around in the camp. And he's he's sneaking around in the camp. Think about how afraid he must be. I don't want to bump into nothing. I don't want to trip over a jar. don't want to make noise, you know, step on something. Whatever. I want nobody to find me in here. And as he's sneaking around, he comes across two guys talking to each other. Just so happens... He comes up against these two guys talking. And so, the one guy tells about his dream. He talks about a barley loaf rolling into camp. The, the loaves in, in Israel often are round. Kind of, the, the, the vision is kind of like a, a cake or a wheel. And he sees it rolling down into camp and it hits a tent and poof, you know, knocks the tent down. Well, barley was the bread for the poor. 
the extreme poor. The wealthy had wheat. The poor had barley. And so Israel is the poor because the Midianites have taken everything they got. All their stuff has been taken. So his buddy who's there with him is going to give the interpretation. So his commandment, or his commandment, his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. And into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Just so happens that God woke up Gideon. Just so happens as he's sneaking through the camp that he comes across a Midianite who just so happened to have a dream about a barley loaf rolling in and knocking down a tent. And it just so happens that his friend says, well, that's a sword of Gideon. The Lord has given the Midianites over to his hands. You believe in that many coincidences? There is no such thing as a coincidence. There are Godowinces. God organized it, brought them in, showed Gideon this. Now, it doesn't even matter if the guy is serious or not. I tend to think that to the Midianites, it's all a joke. I tend to think the Midianites are like, Laughing about the dream. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's that Gideon guy. Because why are they afraid of Gideon? What has he done? Nothing. How big's his army? I don't know, but the first day he had his whole army together, two-thirds of them left. Yeah, I don't think they're afraid of Gideon. I think they're mocking it. Oh, the sword of Gideon. He's, God has delivered him into our hands. I don't know. Maybe he was serious. Maybe they started to get a glimpse of the fact that God was with them. I don't know, but here's what I do know. Because Gideon was obedient and he took that journey that really didn't make a lot of sense to him, and he took his servant down and he heard this dream and he heard what was happening, after that, Gideon was never the same again. Never the same. He had faith. That journey, going in, sneaking around, hearing that dream and the interpretation, was the last peg in in Gideon's armor that needed to be nailed down so that he would stand, be a, a man that would stand in faith. And he does. After that, after he hears all that that guy has to say, look at verse 15. So it was, when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. Before you can ever be a warrior for God, you better learn how to worship. Probably the greatest, most well-known warrior for God was a young man named David. Saul killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. That means David was like the ultimate warrior. But what do we also know about David? Before he was a warrior, what was he? A worshiper, a shepherd who wrote psalms, sang praises to God was just as likely to pull a sling out and throw a stone at you as to pull out his harp and start playing a song. A worshiper. And here, what do we see Gideon do? He meets God. He, he, God meets him in this place. His faith is encouraged. It's the last little bit that he needed. And he falls down and he worships God. Worships him. Goes before the Lord. And then he returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise. For the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Now he doesn't have any doubts. Doubts have been removed. Doubts have been removed. 
Listen, if you struggle with doubts, stop beating yourself up. Gideon struggled with doubts too. But before God used Gideon, he helped him to overcome his doubts. He helped him to face his fears. He helped to increase his faith. We see Gideon in chapter 7 move from coward to conqueror. And who did it? Gideon? God. Working in Gideon's life. Gideon allowing God to, to do the things that the Lord wanted to do in that place. His doubts are gone. He's ready to go. So he divided the 300 men into three companies. And here's the weapons. You ready? And he gave them a trumpet in every man's hand. An empty pitcher. And a torch inside the pitcher. Now, does that sound like they're going to a battle or a party? I got my party horn. All I'm missing is my party hat. I got an empty pitcher to fill up. I got a candle I can put on the cake. I'm good to go. Doesn't sound like battle attire, does it? Right now, as they're handing all that stuff out, what do the 300 think? Really? Man, 300. But I think these 300 were the 300 guys also who were most able to trust the Lord. Because they do it. They take what he gives them. They divide it into three parts. And he said, now look at me and do what I do. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you do what I do. What example are we following? Gideon went out to the people and said, you do what I do. Today, you turn on the news and some sport guy will come up there and say, I am not uh, trying to be a mentor for youth. Uh, Sorry. That day you took your $50 million bonus to see whether or not you could catch a ball, you signed on to be an example to other people. Own up. Whose example are you following? And what example are you providing? Gideon here says, follow me. Remember what Paul said? Follow me how? As I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. I'm going to stay out with him. You stay with me. Let's go. Let's go. Following the example of the Lord. So, we go on with the story. So, Gideon has, has given these guys their weapons. And he's told them, do what I do. Now, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, and you also blow your trumpets on every side of the whole camp and shout the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. By the way, they're shouting the covenantial name of God. This happens another time. Well, except it's not really a shout. Well, it happens like this. Uh, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and, and a... a uh, cohort of Roman soldiers comes to him, uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of, of, uh, I've heard up to 600, but it's a big number that's come up to Jesus. And they want to know, you know, where is this Jesus guy at, right? And they come up asking, you remember the Gospel of John tells about it. Jesus said, I am. What happened? All on the ground. Why would they fall down? 
Because that's God's name. The ego I me. The Yahweh. The I am. So what are they going to shout? They're going to shout the sword of the Lord, which is God's covenantal name, and the end of Gideon. And then they're going to see what happens. So, sounds like a great plan to me. I'd sign up in a minute. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came out of the outpost of the camp. And beginning at the middle of the watch, just as they had posted at the watch, they blew the trumpets, broke the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew their trumpet, broke their pitchers, and they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And don't miss this part. And every man did what? Stood in his place around the camp. They say every man then dropped the torch, pulled out the sword, and started chasing people around. They went. They broke the pitcher. The light shone forth. The light, Jesus said, I am what? Light of the world. What does the light drive out? Darkness. They blew the trumpet. The trumpet of God. Sounding the trumpet of God. Which calls God's people to assemble together. They blow the trumpet. They break the pitcher. They break out the light. And they shout the covenantal name of the Lord. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood their ground. Just waited. God said, if you do what I tell you, I'm going to give you the victory. So they did it. They stood their ground all around the camp. And when the 300 blew the trumpets, listen, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerarah as far as the border of Abel, Mechola, by Tabath. So they're gathered there in the valley of Armageddon. They surround them with these 300 guys. They blow their trumpet, break the pitcher, lights come forth. They shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And God confused all the army and they started killing each other. And the 300 just stood their ground. And the people freaked out so bad that they fled. The whole army is running. Who are they running from? Themselves. They're running from themselves, running as far as they can get. And when they run, as they take off and run, Gideon is going to make the call to all those guys who left. And he's going to say, hey guys, let's go get them. He's going to bring the army back together. We'll see it here. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. All those guys who are ready to do battle. Here they go. Now they're chasing them. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan so they can't get any water. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb by the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So we see Gideon move from coward 
It's a conqueror. And he's still got some good things he's going to do. But listen, that's not the end of Gideon's story. Remember I told you there's three phases to Gideon's story. He's going to go from coward to conqueror to compromise. And the end is not going to be as good as it should have been. We always have to learn that at the pinnacle of victory, it is not time to let down your guard. Scripture says it like this, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. When we're at the top of the victory, it ain't over. Are we still in enemy territory? Absolutely. From now till we see Jesus face to face. So we'll see Gideon's next challenge as he continues to chase those armies. But the exciting thing is, God brought him on a journey of faith, increased his faith, gave him the faith that he needed, encouraged him, made him into the warrior that he becomes through faith. Because it's it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Right? Some trust in chariots, some horses, but I will remember the name of the Lord. Amen? Why don't you guys stand up with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you. We praise you, Father, for just this opportunity to come before you to, to just see how you, how you moved in Gideon's life. And God, I know so many times we get discouraged because maybe we don't feel like we're that hero. We're not the hero of the story. We're we're not able to to do the things that they did. But God, you said, Lord Jesus, you told us. These things you've seen me do and greater you will do. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. If we can believe, if we can take that first step, receiving the promise. What's the promise? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's where the victory is found. If we would move from that promise and continue our journey of faith before the Lord, God, you will bring us to that place where we can see as the heroes of faith saw the power of God moving in the land of the living. For there is a work that God wants to do right here. And he doesn't even need 300 to do it. He just needs faithful men and women who will believe the promise, hear the call, and stand for him. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be the men and women you're calling us to be. That we would enter into our battle, not as those who were afraid and had to leave, but as those who trust you, whose faith is in you, who can be obedient to what you've called us to be. To do the things that don't make sense, but they don't have to make sense. They don't have to make sense to my mind. Your ways are, are, are better than my ways, higher than my ways. God, I know, I pray, Father, that we would trust you implicitly and that you would give us the victory 
We would see our community radically changed, our neighborhoods radically changed, our friends radically changed as we come to a place of radical faith. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit for this purpose, Lord God. Move, guide, lead. Be glorified and magnified. And may we always remember that victory only comes by your hand. It's not me, it's you. So I, I must decrease. And he must increase. Lord, we pray that you would move in a mighty way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.